Well, it is uh, a pleasure, a real joy, and even an honor to be here this, this morning to be with you. Uh, as Justin mentioned, 1989 to 1992, not too long after where that go, uh, what was the year this place was founded? 1894. Not too, too many years after that, I arrived at Ontario Bible College and uh, you know, just a great time for me in my journey, my walk of faith. I was, I don't even know if I was a Christian when I got to OBC. I don't think my wife was, but you know, those were just amazing years, those three good years. And we were grounded in the gospel and then we got married. And uh, when you see a bunch of kids, it's a bunch. Um, how many? Uh, six. And, and that's, that's all. That's all. That's everything. So I'm um, so good to be here this morning with you. Um, the passage that Justin read is taken from the Gospel of John. And in John's Gospel, uh, we see the risen Jesus Christ walking, moving. We see him interacting with different people in various conditions. And we see him interacting with this man named Thomas in our text this morning. Now, for some of you, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ may seem like a bit of a myth. You may have some very significant doubts as to whether Jesus Christ actually rose from the grave. And if that's the case, this passage is for you. Maybe you're here this morning and... You don't doubt that Jesus actually rose from death. But maybe the question for you is more, well, if he is alive, then, then why, why doesn't he seem more alive in my life? Where is he? I mean, if he really did rise 2,000 years ago, if he really is alive, then, then why don't I sense him more than I do? Why am I not experiencing him? Where is he Maybe those are your questions this morning, and if they are, this story is also for you, because regardless of where you are, whether you are exploring the Christian faith, whether you're experiencing it, doubts abound, don't they? We all have doubts. We all have significant questions. And this morning, we're going to simply walk through this story, which unfolds really in two scenes. First, we see a portrait of doubt, and then secondly, we see a path through doubt. First, the portrait of doubt. Psychologists call it confirmation bias. Have you heard of that? It's, um, it's the idea, in a nutshell, that you can actually believe something and believe it to be so true that you are unwilling to entertain any data that might contradict your ideas, your, your beliefs. So, for example, say I were to believe that, I don't know, um, second cup, for example, makes the best coffee in the world. And let's say all I did was drink second cup coffee. And everything I did, every, all of my experience confirms that second cup makes the best cup of coffee. And I completely ignore the very clear data that, well, maybe it doesn't actually make the very best coffee in the world. That's confirmation bias. And Thomas, it seems, is struggling with 
confirmation bias. Because he had an idea, an expectation of the way that things were supposed to play out and the way things were supposed to be with Jesus. He expected Jesus to be the kind of Messiah who would basically give Rome the boot, who would bring in the glory days that had existed for Israel, that Jesus would restore Israel to its pristine ethnic cultural past. And everything Jesus did so it seemed to Thomas seemed to confirm that bias. Every time Jesus worked a miracle, Thomas was like, yes. Every time Jesus walked on water or cast out demons or did this or that, Thomas was like, yes, it's my man. But then Jesus went and got himself arrested. And Thomas looked on in horror as three long Roman nails pierced Jesus to a cross. And that wasn't supposed to happen. Not in Thomas's thinking. You, you, you can't have Jesus on a cross. You, you can't have that. that. That just can't be part of the script. So Thomas is disillusioned, to say the least. He is down. He is depressed. And he's alone. We're told at the beginning of our story that he he wasn't there when Jesus appeared to the other disciples. He just wasn't there. And I have a sense that he was probably off in his grief. Isn't that what you do when you're hurting? I mean, isn't that where you go when you've had expectations of the way things should be and the way that God should have worked? And it doesn't play out that way. And Thomas is grieving. He's wildly disillusioned. And that's what you do when you're in pain. You bend in on yourself, don't you? You never talk to a person who's just stubbed their toe. Try and have a conversation with that person. It doesn't work. Pain bends us in on ourselves. And Thomas is disillusioned. But it's good that he's disillusioned. It's good. The problem isn't disillusionment. That's not the problem. In fact, that's a good thing. I mean, if it leads to faith, disillusionment is a very good thing. The problem isn't disillusionment. It's illusion. It's seeing things that aren't there. It's believing things that aren't true. And Thomas is disillusioned, but that's okay. That's okay. I don't know what kind of expectations you have. I don't know what kind of expectations in your life right now you are hanging on to. Maybe you have thoughts of of who God should be and, and what it should mean for Jesus to really be alive. And I don't know if maybe those ideas and those expectations have collided with reality. You know, sometimes I think we approach 
life the way that we might approach a, a Venn diagram. You know what a Venn diagram is? Those two circles and they come together and the area in the middle is the area of commonality. And I think that sometimes we have this circle which is our expectations for the way things should be. And then there's this other circle, which is God's plan for our lives. And we expect God's plan, that circle, to map perfectly onto our expectations. And what happens when it doesn't? What happens when we've expected certain things and they just haven't happened the way that we wanted them to. What does that mean? What does that mean about who God is? Who God is for me? Is he alive? Where is he, you see? I have expectations. I expect, I expect my life to go fairly straightforward. I expect my life to be relatively trial-free. I expect my life to be without pain. And I know I do, because when I experience the very things I don't want to happen, I have a hissy fit. About a year ago, I had a stroke. At 48 years of age, I had a stroke. And I want to tell you that wasn't my idea. That wasn't in my script. And I got... 48% of my my vision taken away. I find it very hard to read now. I have a form of dyslexia called eslexia, acquired dyslexia. When I read, things jump around. I get tired. I live in a state of perpetual dizziness, like a head rush. And I didn't see that coming. And I didn't expect that. And what about you? What are those things that you've expected? What are those ways you've expected life to go and for God to show up and then all of a sudden things don't happen the way you expected them to? And what does that mean? That can be a wildly disillusioning time, can't it? I'm not surprised Thomas is in a bad way. I'm not surprised he's in the mood that he is. I'm not surprised that he's distanced himself from community. I understand that. And I understand that he would be completely irritated by the disciples when they come to him and in their excitement they say to him, Thomas, we've seen Jesus. He is alive. Really? How wonderful for you. How wonderful. But you know, if you, if you want something bad enough, if you want to believe something bad enough, you will see whatever you want to see. But I'll tell you this straight up, that unless I put my hands into his wounds, the nails in his hands, the nail prints in his hands, unless I put my hand in the side where the sword went in, unless I trace that path with my fingers, I will never believe Ever.
history, I think, has given Thomas a raw deal. John Calvin, who I was introduced to back at OBC, says that the stupidity of Thomas was astonishing and monstrous. (laughs) I like a lot of what John Calvin says. I think that's a bit over the top. The poor guy, he doubts for just a minute. And for the rest of church history, he has this moniker attached to him, Doubting Thomas. And I think it's unfair. Unfair because I think there's something very reasonable in some ways about Thomas's request. Something very reasonable about his doubts. I mean, he had seen Jesus. He had seen the nails go into his hands. He had seen the sword go into his side. All he wants to do is see the holes. Is that too much to ask? You know, this is, this is not the cynic. This is not the person who, who knows it all, who sees all the information, who has it all figured out, and yet still believes that you've got an angle. This is not, this is not the skeptic who refuses to look at the information. You know, you talk to a person, do, do you... Have you ever considered the claims of Jesus Christ? Why should I? I'm a skeptic. No. Thomas is a true skeptic. He's looking, he's looking for a reason to believe. He wants to believe with all of his heart. And he's refusing to settle for an easy, safe, superficial faith. He wants answers. And there's something good about it. This, this is the kind of skeptic. This is the kind of person who, who just refuses to settle for anything other than what is substantial. He's the person who, who pours over the medical records, who leaves no rock unturned. He's the person who wiretaps your phone, who throws himself into the dumpster and rummages through the garbage looking for bits of paper and receipts. He wants to believe. He's got questions. He's got big questions. What about you? Are your questions this morning, are your doubts the kind that you're willing to really engage in? Is that okay? Could it be a good thing to actually delve into these things to embrace your doubts, to track them down, to say, I'm not content with all of the question marks in my heart. I'm not saying I'll ever understand everything, but I want to know. I want to know where you are. I want to know what it means for my expectations and your plans for my life, not always to meet. And I want to know, are you here? How alive are you, you see? What I love about Thomas is that um, it's got to be his story, you know. 
He's, he's not okay to say, okay, yeah, you, so you believe that. Okay, yeah, I understand that you say, you say, you saw Jesus, but unless I put my hands into his side, I won't believe. I love how he wants to be personal. And you know, there's something so good about that. There's something not okay with a hand-me-down Christianity. You know, the kind that you just sort of inherit, the kind that you accept, that you believe, not because you believe it, but because it's been given down to you by somebody. When I was in high school, I used to have to wear my brother's clothes, hand-me-downs. And sometimes his friends would come up to me the year afterwards because he was a year older than I was, and they would say, hey, Stringer, those are totally your brother's clothes. And they were. And they never really felt like mine. And there's something to making this yours. Something to making it personal. Unless I, unless I, You know, at the end of this scene, Thomas, however, is still left in a really bad place. He's still got his doubts. And what I love is just how Jesus takes him from that place and brings him to a place of faith, which is the next scene. John says that a full week has now passed and eight days have gone by. And I don't know what Thomas was thinking I don't know what change is going on in his heart. I don't know how he's interacting with the disciples, but I'll tell you this. Something has changed. What has changed? His geography has changed. He's no longer alone. He's now with the disciples. And then he's there. Suddenly, out of nowhere, he's there. Jesus is there. He he walks into the room as though, a locked room as though there were no locks. He walks in alive as though he were never dead. And he declares his peace upon the disciples, all of the disciples. And then he turns to Thomas because that is after all why he's there. And he says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hands and place them in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. How did you know that? How did you know that that was my question? How did you know that was my demand? How did you know that these were my doubts? I just know. I know like I know everything about you, Thomas. Caravaggio has painted this scene. He called it the incredulity of St. Thomas. It's a masterpiece. And if you've seen it, it's a picture of Thomas reaching out and he's about to place his fingers into the ragged edge of Jesus' wound. Um, the only problem with it is that there's, there's no indication that Thomas ever put his fingers into Jesus' body. Jesus showed him his hands, and that was enough for Thomas. He showed Thomas the wounds, and that was all that it took. And that, I believe, my friends, is the best cure for doubt. 
I have had doubts. I have had disillusionment. I have struggled with my expectations of the way things should go and God's plan for my life have not come together and I have asked the questions, really, where are you? Where are you? And I have known what it is to just have nothing to hang on to but those wounds, the sight of those wounds and the belief that when all was said and done, that Jesus died for me. And that in his dying, God was brought together with my own life. The two of us reconciled, peace established, togetherness, unbreakable togetherness. And there were times when that was all I had to go on. And it was enough. It was enough for Thomas. And it's enough for you this morning, no matter where you are. No matter what unmet, misplaced expectations you have. No matter how distant he seems, no matter how unalive he seems, they are enough because they are the proof that Jesus is alive. His power has come to us. The power of sin has been broken. Death has been abolished. He is alive. Whether we feel it, whether we sense it, whether we experience it, no matter what our circumstances say to us, those wounds say to us, I am with you. I am with you. Now, if I was writing this story, I just, I probably would have ended it right there. I would have ended it as soon as Thomas erupts into worship. My, my Lord, my King, my God, I would have just, I would have rolled the credits at that point. But Jesus is not done with Thomas. He says to him, Thomas, you have believed because you have seen. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet who have believed. Thomas, you didn't need to see these wounds to believe, but you did need them so you could be a witness for me, so that countless millions of people who will never see me will believe. And this morning we don't see him but we believe in him. And this morning, even though we don't see him with our eyes, we love him and we love him because we have a record in this book called the Bible that says that Jesus Christ really did die and really did rise. And sometimes, my friends, oftentimes, the only thing that we have, and it is the best thing we could ever have, is the word of God telling us, reiterating that old song, that Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. You know, I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know where you are in your journey of faith. And maybe you're here this morning and it hasn't become personal for you. You have doubts, you have questions. 
And I understand that. But could I encourage you to take seriously the book, to examine it, to ask your questions, to bring your doubts to it, and ask God to show you, is this Jesus alive? And if you're here this morning and you believe that, but there are question marks as to where he is and if he is alive, why isn't he more alive in my life? You go to the book. The book that says he was dead, but he rose. And that's a promise you can take to the bank. It's a promise that's for you this morning. It's a promise to hang on to. It's a truth. It's a reality to bank your existence on. Especially with all the doubts with all the questions. One further thing, and I'll I'll wrap up. If you're here this morning and you do have significant doubts and big questions, may I encourage you to do yourself a big favor and to bring those questions and bring those doubts into the light of community. Because I'll tell you this, because Thomas did that, he was able to experience healing. He brought it into the community where Christ was, and it was in community that those questions, those doubts began to get addressed. Do not do yourself the disservice of holding on to those doubts, holding on to those questions. Just keep them to yourself. Bring them into the light of community. Say to somebody, I've got these doubts. I've got these question marks. And I'm not sure where God is. And I'm not sure what it means for him to be alive in my life right now. Could you help me? Could you pray for me? Could you bring out the book and tell me the truth that he hasn't left me? He hasn't forsaken me. And can you do that so that I won't doubt that I'll believe. Amen. We pray. Father in heaven, would you, would you please, we pray, allow us to be honest with you, to not bury our doubts, not to doubt our doubts, but to actually engage and confront them, to bring them to you, to work them out, to wrestle them out. And I pray, Father, that here in this community that there would be a freedom to do that to put those things on the table and that this community would be one where Christ arises and hope is engendered, where faith is stoked. And where Jesus is celebrated. I want to pray for those particularly this morning who have seismic doubts, who are bewildered, who are disillusioned, who are hurting, who would rather be somewhere else than here this morning because the pain is so deep. Thank you that they're here. And thank you that the risen Christ is in our midst to speak to, to address, 
to walk with us in our doubts. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.